Chapter 11 of Hester, A Story of Contemporary Life by Margaret O. Oliphant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Erickson, Toronto. Chapter 11, Mother and Daughter. Mrs. John had a long time to wait. The old captain prolonged his walk as he was too apt to do beyond his strength, and came home very slowly, leaning on Hester's arm. And then, as every hindrance, when people are anxious, has a way of doubling itself, Mrs. Morgan sent a polite message to say that she hoped Mrs. John Vernon would not object if she kept Hester to supper. Mrs. John objected greatly, but she was weak and had never set up her own will in the face of anyone else who made a stand for theirs. She said, "'Oh, yes, with pleasure,' with a pitiful little smile to Mrs. Morgan's maid. To deny Hester anything, except the power of making a governess of herself and losing caste, was what she had never done in her life. It always gave her a little pang when her child left her to eat her solitary meal in the dark little parlour, which nothing would light up, but she had trained herself to feel that this was very wrong, and that young people need change. Esther was entirely unacquainted with the series of little sacrifices which her mother thus made for her. If she thought of them at all, she thought that the poor lady did not mind. Her old friends next door were not gay, but they talked as Mrs. John was quite incapable of talking, and lived, though they saw nobody, in a wider atmosphere, a bigger world than any of the others. The old captain's stories, the people he had seen, the experiences both these old people had gone through were like another world to Hester. Her mother was small and straightened, had seen without seeing, and lived without living. In the days when Hester had guided her about by the arm, taking her whither she pleased, making new eyes for her in the vividness of her own, it was enough for the girl to have that echo of all her sentiments, that little objection generally ending with agreement, that broken little stream of faint recollections which her mother would give forth. But Hester had long ceased to form part of that sort of dual being which is so often made by a mother and her only daughter. To feel your parents smaller and sillier than yourself is sad. A great many young people do it without any adequate reason, strong in their sense of being the reigning monarchs of the present, while their progenitors belong to the past. Perhaps, indeed, it is the nature of youth to take a pleasure in such superiority. But that is very different from the fact of actual incapacity on the mother's part to follow her child's thoughts or even to know what she meant. Mrs. John was very well aware of it herself, and declared with a smiling countenance that young people liked change, and that she was never so happy as when her child was enjoying herself. And Hester, though she was so much more clever, accepted all this, and believed and thought her mother was quite contented with the evening paper, or a book from the circulating library, and never missed her when she was away. She misunderstood her silly mother far more than that silly mother did her. The lesser comprehended the bigger, not the bigger the lesser, as in the ordinary course of affairs. Mrs. John had a great many sacrifices to make, of which her daughter was quite unconscious, and to-night the poor lady felt it, as with her mind so full she sat down at her little solitary table, which she had made pretty for Hester. There was nothing on it more luxurious than cold meat and salad, but the crisp greenness of the leaves, the little round loaf, the pat of butter in a small silver dish which was one of her relics, 
the creaming glass of milk all set out upon a white cloth and lighted up by the two candles would she had flattered herself call out an admiring exclamation when the girl came in out of the dark a little dazzled for the first moment by the light after she had said oh yes with pleasure mrs john came in and sat down and cried such a pretty table laid out and oh for once so much to say her mind so overflowing her news so all-important there could not be anything so exciting to talk about that was certain on the other side of the partition and this provoked and tantalized sense of having herself far better entertainment for hester than she could be having gave an insufferableness to the position at one moment mrs john thought she must send for the girl that she could not put up with a disappointment but she was much more used to putting up with things than to asserting herself she sat down very cheerlessly and ate a mouthful of bread and salad to eat alone is always miserable hester was making the table where the old morgans sat very lively and cheerful talking as she never talked with her mother they sat and talked quite late into the night what with the captain's stories and mrs morgan's elucidations and hester's questionings the evening was full of interest it flew away so quickly that when the clock struck eleven the girl sprang up with a great sense of guilt eleven o'clock what will mother say i have never been so late before she cried they were all half proud of it of having been so mutually entertaining the poor little mother must have felt lonely mrs morgan said with a passing compunction when heather flew round the corner watched from the door to see that all was safe by the maid but the captain took no notice it is delightful to see how that child enjoys herself he said flattered in spite of himself though it's no very intoxicating amusement we furnish her captain morgan was very soft-hearted and understood by his affections as well as with his understanding but in this case something beguiled him perhaps a little complacency perhaps want of thought when hester ran in in the dark locking the door of the veranda behind her mrs john had gone upstairs and was going to bed she was chilly and cross her daughter thought who ran quickly up to her full of apologies we got talking she said you must forgive me mother the captain's stories run on so one into another one forgets how the time runs on too i wish said mrs john with the tears very near the surface that your mother was sometimes as amusing as the captain it was the greatest reproach she had addressed to her daughter for years oh mother if i had thought you minded cried hester with wondering eyes mrs john was penitent at once and did her best to make things up i ought not to speak she said after all for i was not so very lonely harry stayed a long time and kept me company it is only when you have him to yourself that you see how nice he is is he so nice said hester indifferently how lucky for him to find you alone she added with a little laugh oh hester how can you say so as if it was me he came for whatever you may try to make yourself believe you can't think that hester made no reply she slept in a small room within her mother's the door of which always stood open she had taken off her outdoor things and let down her hair to brush it about her in a cloud running up into curls as soon as she let it free mrs john seated in the easiest chair sat contemplating this operation with a mixture of pleasure and pain the mass of curls was pretty but it was not the fashion 
It was quite unlike the smooth, brown, glossy locks that had adorned her own head when she was young. But she said to herself that it suited Hester, and gazed at her child admiringly, yet anxiously, conscious of many things in which she might be improved. Her hair, for one thing, and her waist, which was not so small as Mrs. John's had been in her youth, and her nose, which was a little too short, and yet with all these defects she was pretty. When she was Harry's wife, everybody would admire her. Perhaps it was only because she was not sufficiently seen that she had no more admirers now. "'I had a great deal to say to you, dear,' she said. "'I don't grudge you being away when you are enjoying yourself, but I had many things to say. It is not likely that Harry Vernon would sit with me for hours, for nothing.' "'I suppose,' said Hester, from the midst of her curls, "'that he finds it dull now without Ellen at the White House.' "'I could tell you a great deal about that,' said her mother quickly, eager to seize an opening. But Hester yawned with discouraging demonstrations of fatigue. "'Don't you think it will keep till tomorrow, mother? We had a long walk, and I am sleepy. I think Harry can't be very urgent. Tomorrow will be time enough.' "'Oh, Hester, how strange you are!' cried Mrs. John. "'So pleased with those old people, ready to listen to all their old stories.' "'But when I begin to talk to you of a thing that is of the greatest importance—' "'Nothing concerning Harry Vernon can be of great importance to me,' cried the perverse girl, and then she tried to turn off her willfulness with a laugh. "'The beauty of the captain's stories is that they are of no importance, mother. You can have them when you please. It is like going to a theatre or reading a book.' "'I am not so clever as the captain to interest you,' Mrs. John said." There was a plaintive tone in her voice with which Hester was very well acquainted, and which betokened an inclination to tears. She came and kissed her mother, and gave her a few of those half-impatient caresses which generally soothed the poor lady. The girl did not in the least know that any consciousness was in Mrs. John's mind of the superficial character of these kindnesses. She was not without love for the tender domestic creature who had been hers to use at her pleasure since ever she could recollect but she bestowed these kisses upon her as she would have given sweetmeats to a child. "'Go to bed, mother. Don't mind me. I will shut the door. You shall not have the light in your eyes to keep you from sleeping. Go to bed, Mammy, darling.' Mrs. John had liked this caressing talk when Hester was a child. She was soothed by it still, though a faint sense that there was something like contempt in it had got into her mind, and she could not struggle against a will which was so much stronger than her own. But she could not sleep, though she allowed herself to be put to bed. She could not help crying in the night and wondering what she could do to be more respected, to be more important to her child, and then she prayed that she might be able to put Harry before her in the best light, and stopped and wondered whether it were right to pray about a young man. Altogether, Mrs. John had not a tranquil night. But next morning she made a great effort to dismiss her anxiety, to present herself at breakfast with a cheerful aspect, and to get rid of that plaintive tone which she was herself aware of, which she had so often tried to remedy. Instead of it, she tried a little jauntiness and gaiety, for extremes are always easy. It is the juste milieu which is so difficult to attain. I am afraid I scolded you last night, Hester. I was cross when you came back. One can't help being cross when one has a great many things to say and no audience, she said with a laugh. I am very sorry, Mamma. I do not mean to stay so late. 
Oh, it was nothing, my dear. I had Harry. He sat with me a long time. He is really very entertaining when you have him to yourself. Is he? said Hester demurely. I should not have expected that, but I am very glad, mother, for your sake. Because I am likely to see a great deal of him in the future? Oh, yes, my dear, I hope so, at least. He is very kind to me. Nobody has spoken so nicely of me for many a year. I like him for that, said Hester honestly, yet with a blush of self-consciousness, for perhaps, though she liked him for it, it did not improve her opinion of Harry's intellect that he should find her mother's company so congenial. Oh, you would if you knew him better, Hester. He feels for me in my changed circumstances. You don't know how different things used to be. What a great deal people used to think of me when I was young. I don't complain, for perhaps it was silly of them. But it is a great change. But living where he does in my house, you know, Harry feels that. He says it is there I ought to be, in the White House. Even though nothing should ever come of it, it is nice that somebody should think so. Unfortunately, nothing can ever come of it, said Hester. However nice people may be, they do not give up their house to you, or their living, for you would need his money as well to be able to live in the White House. You say, unfortunately, dear, said her mother with eagerness. Mrs. John blushed like a girl as she began her attempt to hint out Harry's love-tale to her daughter. She was innocent and modest, though she was silly. No talk about lovers, no petty maxims about marriage had ever offended Hester's ears. Her mother blushed and trembled when she felt herself broaching the subject to her child. Oh, Hester, it would be easy, very easy, to cease to be unfortunate, if you choose, dear. All that part of our life might fly away like a cloud, if you choose. We might be done with poverty and dependence and thinking of what Catherine will say and what people will think. The White House might be yours, if you liked. Everything might be yours. You would only have to say the word. Mrs. John's eyes filled with tears. She could not get to the end of a long speech like this without crying, and she was so anxious that they found their way also into her voice. Mother, cried Hester, opening wide her eyes. They were very bright and clear, and when they opened widely looked almost unnatural in their size. She was all the more startled that she had never been subject to any such representation before. "'I don't know what you mean,' she said. "'What should we do with the White House? I think it is a vulgar, staring place, and far too big.' "'Don't speak so, Hester. I can't bear it. My own married home that your poor papa took me to.' I beg your pardon, mother. I had forgotten that. Of course, taste was different in those days. Oh, taste! Your poor papa had beautiful taste. There are some things there that just break my heart. The ormolu set that everybody admired so, and the picture of me over the mantelpiece in the little parlor. It used to be in the drawing-room, but you can't wonder at them changing it. The hair was worn high then, on the top of your head, and short sleeves. It was very becoming to me, and to hear you call it vulgar and staring, it was a mistake, Mamma. I did not think what I was saying. Forgive me, mother dear. You know I would forgive you anything, cried Mrs. John, now fairly launched and forgetting all prudential restraints. But, oh, Hester, my darling, when he speaks to you, don't be hasty. Think of all that is involved. 
i am not going to tell you what he wants to say oh no he would never forgive me it is he himself that must tell you that but hester oh don't speak hastily don't answer all in a moment without thinking often often a girl says what she is sorry for not being prepared think my darling what it would be not only to be rich but to be independent to have your own house all your own and no charity to have as much money as you want to be able to help the poor and do everything you wish and to make me happy so happy to the end of my days it was thus that mrs john treated harry's secret she forgot all her precautions and her conviction that from himself only the proposal ought to come the dialogue she had invented the long conversations with hester which she had held in imagination delicately diplomatically leading up to the main possibility had all disappeared when the moment came when she began to speak she had forgotten them altogether and gone off impromptu without recollecting a syllable of all that had been so painfully prepared and her own eloquence if it did not affect her daughter affected herself beyond description her mouth quivered the tears flowed out of her eyes esther who could no more bear to see her mother cry though she had seen that sight often enough than to see the tears of a child rose from her seat and coming round hurriedly behind mrs john's chair put her arms caressingly round her and laid her cheek to that wet one she was not so entirely unprepared but that she understood well enough what this emotion meant but she tried to look as if it had a different meaning altogether she drew her mother's head to her breast and kissed her dear mother is it really so bitter to you to be dependent and you never let me know that you felt it what would have been the good said the poor lady when we could do nothing the thing was to put the best face upon it but now when it is all in your power it was always in my power said hester with a mixture of real earnestness and a desire to persuade her mother that she put a different meaning upon all that had been said if you had not stopped me mother but i have not lost my accent and if you will only give your consent now i am older and people will trust me with their children oh hester do not vex me so cried mrs john do you think that is what i mean and besides if i were to give you leave to-morrow catherine you know would never consent if you will trust to me said hester colouring high what catherine pleases shall not be the last word mrs john wrung her hands drawing herself out of hester's arms to gaze into her face oh why will you make such a mistake it is not that i am not strong to stand out against you hester but for your own sake and catherine would never let you do it oh this is quite a different thing my dear love not to work like any poor girl but to be far above that to have everything that art could desire and all so right and so nice and so suitable hester if your dear papa had lived and all had gone well i could not have wished for a better match match said the girl colouring violently she had indeed understood well enough that harry was behind all her mother's anxious insinuations her promises and entreaties but she had been confident in her power to defeat mrs john by aid of her own confused statements always capable of bearing two meanings this word match however was one upon which there could be no confusion and she was immediately driven to bay she drew herself away from the tender attitude in which she had been standing 
I never thought, she said, that this was a thing that could be discussed between us. With all the unreasonable indignation of a high-handed girl determined to crush all attempts to influence her on the spot. But Mrs. John, though she was conscious she could not stand against Hester, was too sure that she was right, and too deeply convinced of the importance of this great question to give in, as she usually did. "'Oh, why should it not be discussed between us?' she said. "'Is there anyone so much interested as I am? I have heard people say it was a mother's duty. And Hester, abroad where we used to live, I should have settled it altogether. You would never have been consulted.' "'I am sure I don't know that it is not the best way. "'It is a way that could never have been taken with me,' Hester said. "'She walked round to her own side of the table with a very stately aspect and sat down, "'and made a pretense of resuming her breakfast. "'But her hand trembled with excitement as she took up her cup. "'It may be quite true what you say, that you are interested, mother. "'I suppose so.' People consider a girl a piece of goods to be sold and disposed of. Oh, Hester, have I ever thought so? I have been wanting in my duty, cried Mrs. John. I have never tried to put you forward, to get you invitations, to have you seen and admired as other people do. You are so proud and so fanciful that I have never dared to do it. And when there comes one without ever being invited, or thought of, or supposed possible— it seemed to Esther that the burning blush which she felt go all over her was capable of bursting into flame. It was not the shy, shamefacedness with which every girl contemplates this subject on its first introduction, but bitter and scorching shame. Invited? Thought of? Mother, she cried in a voice of girlish thunder, is it possible that you could ever think of scheming, matchmaking, for me? No capitals could represent the fervor of her indignation. She was entirely unconscious of the arrogance of self-opinion that was in all she said. For me, that a man should be invited into her presence with that thought, that she should be put forward, taken into society in order to be seen with that view. Heaven and earth, was it possible that a woman should avow such possibilities and yet live? When I tell you that I never did it, Hester... "'Oh, I know it was my duty,' Mrs. John cried with tears. "'Never was woman punished more unjustly. "'She turned like the proverbial worm at the supreme inappropriateness of this judgment against her, "'and a sudden impulse of anger sustained the gentle little woman. "'I know it was my duty,' she cried. "'For who was to care for you to see that you were settled in life but me? "'But I was afraid to do it. I was obliged to leave it. To Providence, I just said to myself, it is no use. Hester would never be guided by me. I must leave it to Providence. It did not appear that Mrs. John had much opinion of Providence in such matters, for she announced this with a voice of despair. Then, taking courage a little, she said with insinuating gentleness, I was just the same when I was a girl. I could not endure to hear about settlements and things. It was all love I thought of. My darling, I was like you, all love. Oh, mother, cried Hester, jumping to her feet. This was more intolerable than the other. Her face flamed anew with the suggestion that it was all love. For heaven's sake, don't say any more about it unless you want to drive me out of my senses, she said. Mrs. John stopped crying. She was so astonished and gazed with open mouth and eyes. 
She had thought this last tender touch would be irresistible, that the child would fall into her arms and perhaps breathe forth the sweetest secret aspiration of her heart, perhaps own to her that dark eyes and a moustache had been her dream, instead of Harry's fairness, or that a melting voice or a genius for poetry were absolute requirements of her hero. With all these fancies she would have so tenderly sympathized. She would have liked to discuss everything— to point out that, after all, a fair complexion was very nice, and a genius for poetry not profitable. She remembered what occupation and delight these same subjects had afforded her in the interval before John Vernon had proposed to her. She herself had dreamed of a troubadour, a lonely being with a guitar, with long hair and misfortunes, and John Vernon had none of these attractions. She was talked over by her mother and sister, and made to see that the bank and the white house were far better. Esther perhaps would have been more difficult, but yet she had felt that, confidence once established, the sweetness of these discussions would have been unspeakable. When she had got over her astonishment, she sank back in a despair which was not unmingled with resentment. Had it come to that, that nothing a mother could say would please a child nowadays, neither the attractions of a great match nor the tenderness of love. This was how the great question of a young woman's life was first revealed to Hester. It was not, to be sure, the last word. That would come when she was placed face to face with the aspirant for her favour, and have to decide, so to speak, upon the future of two lives. But to say no to Harry would not have excited and confused her being, like this previous encounter, with all the other powers and influences which were concerned or which were considered to be concerned in her fate. End of chapter 11